The Magician's Niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Soon after the marriage, Victoria had demanded that she and Geoffrey sleep in separate bedrooms at opposite ends of the corridor. She said it was his snoring, but that was another little lie. Victoria had only succumbed to the idea of pregnancy when she saw the extent of the praise and attention festooned on her loyal friend Rachel. So simple and effortless was the act, she thought, that she wanted her fair share of the glow. Victoria had to admit that she was supremely proud of her fecundity. It only took Geoffrey one quick and altogether not too hideous go. Her GP's announcement at the success of the deed had brought Victoria a great happiness. She'd experienced, in the doctor's office, a wave of a familiar sensation coursing through her every sinew, her every bone. It was a feeling with whom Victoria had become close friends over her many years of marriage. It was a smug sensation one of glee and satisfaction, a feeling that declared to the woman that she was, again, to be the centre of attention, and that Geoffrey would have no choice but to further feather her nest. As Victoria had driven away from the GP's practice that day, just one thought had accompanied her on her very short journey home. Boy, he's going to pay for this. Victoria was pleased at how quickly she'd been transformed into an expectant mother all radiance and rosy cheeks. She went for regular beauty treatments and soothing massages. She bought new dresses, silk pyjamas, a fur coat. She luxuriated in the precious thought of just how much money Geoffrey was having to spend. Victoria didn't feel guilty, of course. After all, she had been the one to forsake so much in simply marrying the man. Admittedly, Geoffrey was the one with the family fortune, but Victoria had always thought she offered something much more, something money simply couldn't buy. Yes, Geoffrey was the lucky one, she would say, and poor suffering her. He wasn't exactly an Adonis. In fact, Rachel would often tell her friend that he was lucky she'd even condescended to marry him. The pregnancy had gone by quite breezily, and Victoria had made sure to squeeze every morsel of sympathy out of all of her family and friends. The pain, though, that was brewing within her at this present moment was something quite horrendous. It was sharp and prickly and deep, and frankly she was angry that no one had warned her of how truly devastating the excruciation of childbirth would be. How any woman in the history of humankind could ever have been persuaded to have a go at this, Victoria could not calculate in her ever more intoxicated mind. She'd already been given so-called painkillers in the form of gas and air, but not a jot of her agony had been eradicated. In fact, their only effect had been to render her sleepy in between the flesh-tearing pain of contractions. Yes, Victoria was a tad on the weighty side, but fundamentally she was really quite petite. Indeed, she'd had a moment's satisfaction when the doctor announced that it might be more difficult for her to deliver the child given her very slight frame. 
Victoria had demanded Geoffrey be present, even though, in 1967, this was very much against convention. She wanted her husband to witness just how much she was to have to struggle, just how much pain and agony the man had put her through. Quite frankly, though, Victoria could never have believed that the torment would be precisely this miserable. The pain had begun what seemed now like an eternity ago, radiating, pulsating all throughout her body from some fleshy and unfathomable depth inside. Victoria began to find herself screaming. Her back was beginning to arch. Her chin was thrown up in the air. They were telling her that the baby was too big, that they'd have to pull it out by the head with metal tongs. With the combined effects of the drugs and the torment, Victoria wasn't in any fit state to forbid the indignity. It took them three or four impossible heaves. The baby came out screaming, deafening, piercing. Horrible it was. Victoria could hardly bear it. But then the screaming suddenly stopped. A disconcerting silence descended on the room. Victoria didn't notice it at first. She was too busy feeling angry that she was too tired to even scold her husband for not giving her the immediate praise and attention that she had so amply earned. Even if she had observed that silence, though, it wouldn't have caused her much concern. She was already beginning to feel a tide of resentment rippling through her, resentment for the foreign being that had just been ripped so savagely from within. Everybody was turned away from Victoria. They were fixated on this odd little creature. She was beginning to feel more than a little bit cross. Was this to be the last day of her life that she was to be the centre of the world? It did occur to Victoria, however, that this baby of hers wasn't crying. Shouldn't there be at least a whimper, she thought, from this her bundle of joy? Geoffrey was cowering in the corner. It seemed he couldn't look Victoria in the eye. In any case, she was too tired to stare him down or find the words to belittle him. Don't worry, darling, she heard him whisper. Whatever happens, it will be all right. Victoria couldn't quite decipher the meaning of his words. Was this baby stillborn? She'd have to pretend to be sad, of course, but she'd given it a go and no one could reproach her. She'd get a few gifts, move on with her life, and everyone would be forever sympathetic towards her, just the way she liked it. The doctors wheeled the baby out of the room. The midwife approached Victoria. She took her by the hand. Is it dead? Victoria asked, her voice convincingly sombre. No, no, nothing like that, said the nurse. Is our baby all right? Geoffrey had wandered over to Victoria, coming uncomfortably close to his wife. The nurse lowered her eyes ponderously. It seemed she was trying to choose her words as delicately as she possibly could. I'm afraid there's no easy way of saying this. They're currently running a few checks to confirm, but it does rather seem a certainty that your child is a mongoloid type. Victoria let out a piercing wail, Geoffrey rested his arms on her shoulders. He tried to cradle his wife. Get away from me, you oaf, she murmured. You put this inside me. I never wanted it. My life will never be the same again. Victoria looked up at Geoffrey, into his grey, watery eyes, and she saw there the fear she had always enjoyed inspiring in him. And in that moment, she delighted in the knowledge that the fool had no idea of just how things will become.
mother used to use. A flightless bird, she'd say, and very much extinct. Dawn liked birds, all of them, even dodos. She liked nothing more than to sit in the garden at Lotus, or on the window seat, binoculars in hand, and look up at the trees and at the spiky skyline of London. But Dawn really did hate that nickname. Etta decided to call her Hen One. She'd taken the name Hen Two. Hen because they shared a middle name, Henrietta, and Hen because they knew that neither one of them would ever be able to fly, not like all the other children. Soon, though, it was to be Dawn's 18th birthday. She always tried to follow the advice of Auntie Kira, to trust in herself and to never be ashamed of who she was. She knew it would be more and more important with every passing year, especially as her aunt got older. She'd been very sick too these past few years, and Dawn was always worried that one day she might lose her. But it was now 1985, and Down syndrome was not as misunderstood as it used to be. One day Dawn hoped to live alone and have a job, live with independence and freedom, like all those soaring birds, high up in the open sky. But Dawn did feel misunderstood, and she felt particularly misunderstood by her own mother. Dawn had been sent to Lotons by her mother at four years old. At that time, it was still called Lotan School for Defective Children. But now it was a school for children with learning difficulties. Lotans was all right. It was more than all right, in fact. Auntie Kira lived only five minutes away, in a nice big house just off Wimbledon Common. Dawn loved her aunt. She loved her so much more than her own mother. Kira was such a kind and caring person so kind that Dawn would always call her the Dove. And then there was Dr Jones, and she was lovely, and Mrs Wade, who looked after them all, and Etta, Dawn's best friend, who was always there right by her side. Dawn already knew that her aunt was to stay with her mother that week. In fact, she was leaving for Belfast that very afternoon. Auntie Kira had been invited by Dawn's mother, Victoria, to celebrate her 50th birthday, and for having got through all that nasty cancer treatment, and for having got the all clear. Go and enjoy the rest of your life, was what the doctor had told her. Kira was to receive a very special gift from her sister. She and Dawn had speculated as to what this special gift could possibly be. It was Dawn who suggested it might be a holiday. When Daddy got put in the home, she'd said, Mummy took all of her friends on holiday. She likes holidays, and I know she especially likes a good cruise. She's been on so many of them, she must be the whole world's expert. Well, I can't stand them, Auntie Kira had replied. I get seasick, I'm claustrophobic, and they remind me of my ex-husband. Do you remember Derek? Horrible man. You know he once got the norovirus off an island called Crete, and we were stuck in our cabins for three whole days. Dawn made sure to phone her aunt before she left for the airport. I want you to phone me when you've got to Mum's, she told her. Then I'll know you've got there safely.
Chapter 3 The Dove The flight left Heathrow at 5.30. Sunset was still a few hours away yet, but the sky was overcast and the rain was worrying heavy. Kira was a nervous flyer. She was nervous, in fact, about most things in life. Kira was the first to find her own anxieties infuriating. She used to be such an outgoing, such a confident young woman, but she'd let her self-worth melt away these past 15 years. Two disastrous marriages, her failure to conceive, a cancer diagnosis, and the loss of her undeniably good looks thanks to several punishing rounds of chemotherapy. Kira loved Dawn deeply. The arrival of the child had inspired within her a profound desire to have her own. Gradually, Kira had almost become Dawn's surrogate mother. That went some way to assuage her natural procreative instincts, and she counted herself lucky that she had at least some outlet for her own nurturing tendencies. But Kira really did want a child of her own. Although Kira had, at first, found the thought of her sister sending her only child away so young almost abhorrent, she had to admit that Lotens had been the best place for Dawn. Her own knowledge of children with limited learning abilities had given Kira a critical eye on the workings of the school, and she had come to admire the way they had managed to bring out the best in every single one of their children. Kira had a particular admiration for Dawn's psychiatrist, Dr Jones. In any case, it was in Kira's early thirties that she began to suggest to Nigel that they start, themselves, to try to conceive. Nigel had never been amorous. Their relationship had begun as one of friendship. They had always been close as students together at Queen's. The couple married at twenty-two. It wasn't until twelve years later that Nigel declared he did in fact have a passionate side. A passion not for women, but for men. Those bi-weekly trips to the tennis club, Kira learned, were not for matches or for lessons. She divorced him within a year. For a while, Kira was angry at herself. Such a dupe, she realised, far too nice. She'd allowed him to plunder the thirteen best years of her life, and now, as she approached her mid-thirties, she was beginning to feel more than a little bit desperate. Nigel had always been kind to her, but he'd never nurtured his wife like her friend's husbands did. They'd had a lot of fun, he was good-looking, but it was the promises of what Nigel had never offered her that persuaded her to accept Derek's sudden proposal. But the reality of the marriage made falsehood of his word. It was she who did all the providing and caring of the two. Derek soon turned out to be an empty vessel whose sole intent was to rinse her for all that she was worth. He had an array of bizarre and expensive hobbies that Kira chose to ignore in the rush of their whirlwind romance. He drank expensive wine, bought extravagant gifts for his own children, and conveniently lost his job within the first few months of their wedding. Worst of all, however, he wasn't kind to Dawn. She'd suspected, too, that Derek had fixed his bloodshot eyes on inheriting her house, should anything ever happen to her. To ensure more good money was never to be dumped on that hateful wastrel, she'd altered her will, leaving everything to Dawn. It took Kira three years to gather the courage to ditch him. She knew it. She was guilty of worrying what other people might think. Two failed marriages, and childless, a burden to society, useless, a failure. 
Even her successful career as a highly qualified and sought-after special needs teacher in London did little to compensate for her lack of self-esteem. And then, with the strike of breast cancer two years ago, she began to feel like she was drowning. Kira had never thought that she was vain, but she was shocked by how much all the treatments had altered her looks. Her flaxen hair had vanished, to be replaced by a mat of dark and wiry locks. Always until then very slim, she'd somehow managed to gain two stone. She needed glasses for the first time in her life, and her skin had begun to look much more ruddy. The strange thing was that she'd morphed into looking like her sister. It was Dawn who pointed out the first signs of this transformation. Kira couldn't deny that she found it strange to be so physically linked to a woman that she had to confess she little knew. What she did know of her sister, however, she had to admit she didn't like. She'd never really forgiven Victoria for pinching the first love of her life, Geoffrey. Kira would often find herself fantasising about what her life would have been like if only their courtship hadn't been cut short by that bizarre and horrible incident. From what Kira saw of it, Victoria's life with Geoffrey had been one of pointless luxury. Victoria had never had to work and was surrounded by a group of sycophantic friends. The obsequious Rachel, for example, Victoria's primary fauna, her right-hand man, always there to soothe and flatter and spend. Kira imagined hard-working Geoffrey was powerless in preventing huge sums of money being squandered on yet another pointless venture. Setting up a hairdresser's, the whim of opening a Turkish restaurant after a holiday in Istanbul, the introduction of some new quack beauty treatment to the lovely ladies of Belfast aimed at making plump and wrinkly middle-aged skin look somehow a tad more youthful. Kira had always thought her generation might be more than a little bit selfish, the only cohort to really have it all, and now it seemed they wanted to regain their youth, too. Surely the hard-working young, who would never be in her generation's lucky position, should be allowed ownership of the only thing that was truly theirs, youth. And then there was the golf club. In any case, there were eight years between her and Victoria, it was the war years that had separated them in age. Already, as a child, Victoria had been odd. Kira, of course, had been odd in her own way, too. She'd spent very many years reflecting upon their childhood. And, having worked with children and their parents for a good three decades, she realised just how odd their family home had been. As Kira had grown older, she decided it would be best to move away to London and leave her family be. She decided, too, especially since her illness, never to dwell too much on those early, juvenile conflicts with her sister. Yes, the family home had been chaotic, ruled by the little one's many moods. Victoria would often fight with her mother. Yes, fight. Quite a strong word when talking about the behaviour of a child under ten. Kira had always crept away and could not understand the depth of feeling, the words and sometimes many fists used between them. And then, as quickly as little Vesuvius had erupted, the volcano would fall quiet, tired out by the extent of her own violent rage. Kira noticed that hardly any mention would be made to Daddy once he returned home from work. 
though clearly she was not a party to grown-up talk behind closed doors. Later, Mother, in her old age, would blame her youngest daughter's behaviour, too outrageous to be merely put down to that time of the month, on the girl being the product of marital rape. Kira, though, found it hard to believe that her own docile father could ever commit such an act. Kira quickly learned never to argue with her sister. She did often wonder, though, if her very presence in the home had played a part in stirring her young sister's inner turmoil. Surely there had to be a reason for Victoria to steal the one thing that Kira had truly loved and hoped for, a life with lovely Geoffrey. She had never fully been able to fathom Victoria's motivations, but the theme of outdoing her sister seemed to tinge every single one of her acts. However painful the circumstances, though, Kira always tried to stick to the advice she gave to her own pupils, to always look on the bright side, to always try to be brave. She'd got through cancer, she had a nice house and a lovely niece, a career she enjoyed, and now, perhaps, through this invitation and the mysterious, generous gift, a renewed relationship with a grown-up woman who had experienced her own traumas in life. It was little more than an hour before the plane arrived at Belfast International. Rain was still hurtling down, this time on green fields and helpless sheep and passengers dashing from the terminal to the warmth and safety of their parked cars. Kira took a taxi from the airport to Victoria's house in Helen's Bay. Within 40 minutes, she'd be rapping on her sister's red front door. Kira decided, though, first, to make a quick stop at Beth's, the well-stocked village shop. She had already packed an array of peace offerings from London, a scarf from Liberty's, a little hamper from Fortnum's, but she thought a nice bunch of lilies and a box of her sister's favourite white chocolates might smooth the landing and set them on a course for a genuine, grown-up relationship. then two hours to finalise the details of this most special and singular soiree. Victoria would offer a full three-course meal, fully employing her culinary techniques, though she'd honed to perfection on a similar, sinister enterprise. First, her special recipe of gin plus botanicals, but it wasn't slows that she'd put in the Gordons. Next, mushroom soup, ensuring she saved the dangerous fungi only for her sister's bowl. Respite came in the main course, and she didn't quite know how to poison roast pork. And for pudding, room top with ice cream, her special botanicals making a further appearance in this dish. Room top was a recent discovery by Victoria after this year's Rhine cruise in April. 
She also tasted it on a late June walking holiday in the Alps, although she didn't do any walking and she certainly didn't do any skiing on the glacier. She'd spent those two weeks sunning herself by the pool. It had taken Victoria nearly a year to land upon her victim. It was only at the end of 84 that she'd come to realise that her funds were swiftly dwindling. Just £100,000 were left in her account. She didn't have a mortgage or a necessarily expensive fast car, but she did have Dawn's school fees and Geoffrey's nursing home costs to cover. By her calculations, she had two more years of enjoying her current lifestyle. She needed more cash, and she needed it fast. It was when, browsing through the June edition of Country Life at the Dentists, Victoria saw a similar property for sale in Richmond that she realised the true extent of her sister's astute investment. A five-bedroom, three-reception detached home with a large garden on Wimbledon Common must be worth a small fortune. She knew her sister only had some lowly profession like an infant school teacher, but my, she thought, the woman does know more than a little bit about this property game. Of course, Kira was a singleton, not like her through choice. Victoria was her closest relative, and with that inheritance, well, her financial outlook would turn from the torrential to positively sunny. There had been a conversation several years ago when Kira's marriage to Derek was going, as they say, tits up, about the fact that the house was to be left to the family to prevent the man and his ghastly brood from getting their hands on it in any final settlement. Victoria was Kira's only family, so, of course, she was to be the sole benefactor of the house. So simple was the plan, thought Victoria, so elegant, so clean, cased so swiftly closed. Victoria smirked with the glorious sense of vengeance that she could finally exert on her perfect older sister too, an added benefit that accompanied this, Victoria's acquisition of property. She'd always known that she wasn't the dim one. Oh no, for this was to be the ultimate crime. The only possible impediment, of course, was Dawn. Thank God that girl was an imbecile. At eight o'clock there was a knock at the door. It was Kira looking positively unsightly. Victoria felt a warm and lilting feeling at the sight of her scruffy sister. Kira had always been, much to her annoyance, the pretty one. But Victoria knew that she'd had her own beauty and style. She'd only ended up like this, rotund, by deliberate overindulgence. Her aim, to spite her husband who'd always wanted a slim and lithe woman, much like the lovely Kira. Is that a wig you're wearing? she asked, opening the door on its safety catch. No, Victoria, said Kira, caught slightly off guard, both by the comment and the defensive inspection by her sister of who could possibly be at the door. This is what eight rounds of chemo does to a girl. Victoria gave a contorted smile, inwardly rolling her eyes. Ugh, she thought as she took the door off the safety catch. That woman really is pathetic. Always the victim, always having to suffer just a bit more than everybody else. She took her sister's coat. Slyly, she inspected the label. Size 16. Now she really has something to moan about. She took Kira's luggage, received her sister's gifts. Not bad, she thought to herself, having a good look at the contents of the hamper. Thank God Geoffrey's not here to nab the relish and pork pie. 
Kira asked which bedroom Victoria had put her in. The garden room, said Victoria. Your favourite, of course. Should I make up the bed, or... Oh no, said Victoria, no need. Slow gin? Just a small one for me, thanks, Vic, said Kira. Listen, I promised Dawn I'd give her a call to let her know I landed safely. Mind if I use your phone? Victoria did mind. She had a plan, a timetable. It needed to be adhered to. She told her sister that Dawn should really start getting used to being a bit more independent, that Kira may have been named her guardian, but she wasn't supposed to be anything more than that. No more molly coddling allowed. Victoria narrowed her eyes, waiting as if expecting some smug retort to emerge from the thin and nasty lips of her ever-so-caring sister. But the reply never came. Perhaps, Victoria thought, this sister of hers, finally having come to experience the true depths of mortal suffering, had become a bit more considerate of her own traumas and sensitivities in life. Perhaps, thought Victoria, it was her sister's plan to slip away to use the telephone later that night when she was asleep, or when she was too drunk or tired to notice. But Victoria wouldn't be drunk, and Victoria wouldn't be asleep, and things would have long moved on before sweet, sweet Kira ever had the chance to dote on her needy little niece again. Much to Victoria's annoyance, it appeared Kira wasn't much of a drinker. In fact, as she announced to her sister, she'd been pretty unwell these first two days of the summer holidays. She still felt a bit peaky. Victoria felt her muscles contract as she watched her sister sip so utterly pathetically at the piercingly purple liquid from the other side of the room. Aren't you having a drink, Vic? asked Kira. Victoria replied no, that she too was beginning to feel a little bit off. She wondered aloud if her sister hadn't already passed on this whatever-it-was virus of hers. The pair soon passed to the dining room table. Victoria lit candles, played classical music in the background. She thought it would add to the atmosphere, relax her sister a little, encourage her to eat. Kira merely sipped at the soup, and the room top, well, she wasn't feeling up to eating it. Was this the effect of the deadly nightshade, wondered Victoria, or was it the mere dying remnants of her sister's recent virus? Kira was looking pale and was shivering, but these most certainly weren't the death throes. Indeed, she was far from how Geoffrey presented, and he didn't even eventually perish. It was clear Kira was feeling cold. Victoria suggested that she light the fire. Looking about for some deadly implement, she saw the pair of snowy egrets, two large bronze statues purchased on an overnight stay in St Thomas during a month-long cruise of the Caribbean. With Kira fumbling over the gas switch, Victoria snatched the larger of the two from its pedestal. She couldn't believe the weight of the bird. Yes, it would certainly do. And then, fueled by her years of rage and resentment, all those times she was called the lesser of the two, Victoria brought the beak down on her sister's crown, the blunt force taking immediate effect. Kira buckled at the knees. She fell face first into the fire. Blood landed on Victoria's cheek. Kira's hair began to smell of smoke. Ugh, it was repulsive. Always so selfish, Victoria thought. Of course, Victoria had already made plans of how she would dispose of the body. In fact, she'd already prepared the three-by-three-metre plastic sheet in which she'd wrap the corpse. 
she'd cut open six large black garden refuse bags and stuck them together with extra strong gaffer tape. She'd lay her sister to rest in the cesspit, right at the bottom of the garden. The operation of wrapping Kira's corpse, however, was not so easy. Karma and Sutra, the two Siamese cats Victoria had bought herself when Geoffrey had been carted off, began to fight on the plastic sheet. Sutra made such an enormous tear in the plastic with her claws that Victoria feared she'd have to go to the hardware store first thing in the morning and start the whole process again. She managed to kick the cats away, though. She locked them in the library and gaffer-taped the body round and round several impenetrable times. Victoria pulled the bundle across the lawn and aimed the final shove through the gaping manhole. It took all her ample strength to heave the heavy metal cover on top, but she managed, energised by the thought of all that sweet, sweet money soon to be coming her way. Bye-bye, big sister, she said. Sleep tight, don't let all those wriggly maggots bite. Forty-five minutes of scrubbing and the living room was clean. Victoria was proud, she'd earned herself a stiff drink. Not gin, of course, ha-ha, but a tall glass of vodka and tonic. She didn't want to get too tipsy, however, because there was still much for her to be getting on with, first thing in the morning. It seemed, though, that she was out of ice, out of lemon, too. A quick nip to Beth's before closing was in order. This was a treat that needed to be luxurious, and with all the proper accoutrements. Victoria approached the till with her bag of ice, her organic lemon, and a box of chocolate shortbread. Beth rang her up on the till, chatting all the while as she was wont to do. The girl ran a good shop, thought Victoria, but my God, was she a gossip. That was your sister I had in her earlier, wasn't it? Beth began to chime. Your spitting image. I always thought she had blonde hair. That's what age does to you, Victoria replied in hopes of killing this dangerous conversation. Ha! I'd have thought you were identical twins. I bet you could travel on the very same passport. Victoria laughed derisively, but inside she was irate. Her nostrils flared. She had to swallow her breath. She decided it was best not to reply because she'd underestimated that shop girl she was now coming to realise. And sometimes life's little coincidences can come back to haunt and trap you, because travelling on her sister's passport was exactly what she was going to do.